On Being with Krista Tippett is supported in part by the Fetzer Institute, helping build the spiritual foundation for a loving world. Fetzer's Sharing Spiritual Heritage Report asks, How will we reimagine our spiritual infrastructure for today's time? Learn more at Fetzer.org. I'm Krista Tippett. Up next, my unedited conversation with poet, philosopher, David White. There is a shorter produced version of this wherever you found this podcast. Hello. Hello. Hi. Uh, this is Krista Tippett. Is it David White? Hello there, Krista. Hello. David here. Yes, I recognize you. Very good. And you too. Nice I, uh, to have you on the other end of my microphone. Lovely. You're a little faint. Is there any way uh, um, of bringing yes. your volume up? Yes. We have all kinds of technology to work on that. Um, where are that's, you? That's where, better, where are you sitting actually. now? I'm at the main NPR studios in Washington, D.C. Okay. Where, where do you live now? I live uh, between uh, Whidbey Island in mm-hmm. the Puget Sound mm-hmm. and Oxford, England, and, and uh, quite a bit in Ireland. So. Okay. Yes. Um, I don't know if you remember, we met briefly at, at a big mass event here a couple of years ago. I do, actually, yes. Yep. Yeah. And I think we talked about John O'Donohue. <laughs> exactly. John always had great things to say about you. Yeah. And uh, yes. I also recently interviewed Brother David Stendhal-Rost. Is it right that you're friends with him as well? Uh, I am indeed, yes. He's a very old friend. Yeah. 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 Yeah, he's fantastic. Um, it's his 90th birthday coming up this year I know. in San Francisco. I know. Yes. I think I have an invitation to come to that, and I, I need to see if I can. It's in September, yes. right? Uh, I, I don't know. There's probably yes, a few events. Yes, August, yeah. 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 the end of July. Yeah. Um, do, do you have any questions for me before we start? Uh, 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 yes. What uh, What's the main line do you think you'll be following in the, uh, the theme or questioning? Or? Well, I'm kind of going to move between, um, uh, you know, I've been reading you for a long time and starting with, you know, The Heart Aroused and uh, I, I love the new, the Consolations book. And um, yes. so I'm going to, we're going to kind of just, you know, weave through the way you think and and how your thinking has evolved. And um, I'm just going to talk to you about things like you're, you're speaking about all the time. So I don't... I'm, um, yes. Nothing surprising. Yes. Um, okay, so I got the thumbs up here. Very good. Um, good. Um, so, uh, you know, David, I, for some reason, I always, I had either heard you referred to as an Irish poet, or I had referred to you as an Irish poet. But I lived in the UK for a little while, and I, I thought, I thought maybe your accent had gotten a little bit muddled up by living in the states too much. And then when I read that you were actually that you grew up in Yorkshire, um, and that you're not all Irish, it all perf- made perfect sense to me. Um, <laughs> but, yes, it's uh, my uh, accent is a movable frontier, yes. I think, and uh, I grew up with an, an Irish accent in the house through my mother. Okay. And all the usual uh, Irish sayings and uh, imaginings, and then spent quite a bit of time in Ireland, and uh, and then came to the states in in my adulthood. So, yeah. I think my accent's about forty miles off the coast of County Clare, somewhere <laughs> in the Mid Atlantic. Right. <laughs> and I don't yes. know. Would you explain uh, for people who don't know? Because I, I I just I get it because I I know that part of the world a little bit and yes. love it. That you know you talk about growing up, your. Uh, 
it was your mother who was Irish, right, and your father was mm-hmm. Yorkshire, and that there was this interplay in you between imaginative Irish and the grounded Yorkshire. <laughs> yes, I mean Ireland has its own kind of grounding, uh, but it's grounded in in the imagination and. Uh, and in uh, subverting the foundations of everyday life, and mm-hmm. Yorkshire is uh, is uh, very much here in the world, very uh, workaday. But sometimes it, Yorkshire is so uh, grounded, it's surreal, and it comes out, it turns into its opposite. Mm. So Yorkshire is the place, you know, where the industrial revolution started in the world, uh, but it's also the place of of uh, Emily Bronte's Moors. The wildness of the dales, you know, quite remote places also. It has both. It's a very big county. But it's also got a very big identity. There, yeah. Anyone from Yorkshire is always proclaiming they're from Yorkshire, where, whereas if you're from Surrey, you're not necessarily <laughs> telling anyone else right. in the world. So it's, uh, it's between the two places. I remember when I was seven or eight years old, um, realizing that I wasn't supposed to choose between the two places, even though they were so different. I was supposed to live out my life. Nowadays, I would say, I would put words into my mouth as a seven-year-old and say I was supposed to live out the conversation between them both. But it was mm. something physic felt physically very close. And, of course, um, my work as a poet and philosopher has matured into working with what I call the conversational nature of reality, yes. which is the fact that we don't get to choose so often between things we hope we can choose between. Hmm. Well, I I want to talk I want to talk about that um, very very shortly and and before we do just uh, um, well actually was there a, was there a spiritual background to that childhood of yours a religious background I would say it was spiritual by osmosis rather mm-hmm. than anything my uh, mother had, and her family had undergone the traumas which have now become. Uh, become uh, well known uh, within the Catholic Church. So, my, so she, uh, the Church itself was anathema to her. But she was an instinctual Cath- uh, Irish Catholic, and, uh, it's and kind had of that genetic, strong, isn't it? <laughs> exactly, a, yeah. strong, a strong sense of the other world in this world mm. that was very, very powerful. And then I'd say on my father's side, it was although my father was came uh, from uh, the Protestant chapel-going side of things. Um, I'd say the spirituality for me was in the land and mm. the land of Yorkshire and the Moors. It uh, was very powerful indeed. And you can feel that spirituality if you read Emily Bronte and uh, and that sense of horizon and distance and invitation that's there. Mm. I, mm. And then I was very intrigued to learn that you actually got your degree in marine zoology and that you actually began your working life as a naturalist and were in the Galapagos and... The Amazon, Himalayas. Were, were you also writing poetry then? Well, I've written poetry since I was very small. I uh, I had very powerful experiences with poetry, uh, where I felt uh, I felt literally abducted, uh, taken away by poetry, and just like a hawk had come down and taken me in its claws and carried me off. Mm. And uh, I remember reading Ted Hughes when I was young, and he must have been young then too. And having that feeling and and a very powerful feeling that this was language uh, that adults had written who had not forgotten the primary visions mm. and insights of childhood. Mm. I don't know if you remember that dynamic as a child where you'd sometimes listen in disbelief to what the adults were saying around you, uh, their priorities and, and the things they were they were seeing as being important. 
felt, it felt like a form of amnesia to me. So I, when I read Good Portrait, I said, oh, it is possible actually to mm. keep this primary vision and this primary insight alive into adulthood. So it was a lifeline for me. But when I was 14 years old, I saw Jacques Cousteau, the famous French marine zoologist and inventor of the aqualung, sail across our, our little television set in the north of England. And I really couldn't believe that you could have work like this in the world. You didn't have to be a, a fireman or a train driver, as we, you know. You, uh, you could actually follow the life of the dolphin aboard the good ship Calypso. And I was so astonished by it that I gave up all my art subjects and put myself into the salt mines of biology, chemistry, and physics. And mm. then I emerged with a degree in marine zoology many years later. And then through sheer look and uh, and uh, fortune I, I found myself on the shores of the Galapagos Islands as a as a naturalist guide oh. and that was really astonishing and and uh, that experience in those islands led me back into poetry and philosophy really oh, that makes mm. sense so it was a long long uh, circuit <laughs> yeah but it does um, it does uh, illustrate some of the um, conversations that are that that you know this phrase you mentioned a moment ago that's so pivotal for you the conversational nature of reality some some of the conversations you have worked with um, between um, I don't know things that might not seem to naturally belong together but that have have been your life and the stuff of your philosophy and your poetry. Yes, I mean, I went back into poetry because I felt like scientific language wasn't precise enough to describe mm. the experiences that I had in Galapagos. Science, rightly, is always trying to remove the eye. But uh, I was really interested in the way that the eye deepened the more you paid attention. And in Galapagos, I began to realize that because I was in deeply attentive states, hour after hour, watching animals and birds and landscapes, and that's all I did for almost two years. Um, I began to realize that my identity depended not upon any beliefs I had, inherited beliefs or manufactured beliefs, but it de my identity actually depended on how much attention I was paying to things that were other than myself. Yeah. And, hmm. and that uh, as you deepen this intentionality and this attention, you started to broaden and deepen your own sense of, of presence. And I began to realize that the only place where things were actually real was at this frontier between what you think is you and what you think is not you. Uh, that whatever you desire of the world will not come to pass exactly as you would like it. But the other mercy is that whatever, whatever the world desires of you will also not come to pass. And what actually occurs is this meeting, this frontier. And that's the only place where anything is actually real. But it's astonishing how much time human beings spend away from that frontier, abstracting themselves out of their bodies, out of their direct experience, and uh, out of um, a, a, a deeper, broader, and wider possible future that's waiting for them if they hold the conversation at, at that frontier level. Yeah. But I think we know... You know, part of that dynamic is, as you, as you just described it, um, it it requires walking into the unknown, um, and 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 walking into the unknown, or greeting the unknown with um, a willingness to be changed by it. I mean, there's this sentence of yours 
um, there's no self that will survive a real conversation, which is another way of saying what you just Unfortunately, said. Unfortunately, yes. <laughs> we, but we, we say some more about what you mean by that. Ah, uh, well, well, I'm thinking of my, uh, I'm thinking of my Irish niece Marlene McCormack standing uh, at a place called Finisterre in Spain, having walked the whole Camino de Santiago, and, and you get to Santiago de Compostela, and then you have the possibility of going on for another three days. It's this many hundred mile pilgrimage. And, and then you get to this cliff called Finisterre and, uh, and you look out at uh, this unknown horizon. Uh, and um, um, my uh, niece Marlene had a very powerful experience there. She wanted to become a playwright. She'd studied drama at the University of Sligo in Ireland. And she didn't just want to teach drama. She wanted to actually write plays for which you get no outer corroboration. You know, your future, it's a magnified version of whatever everyone goes through, though. Your future is always hidden from you. You will, yeah. as uh, Antonio Machado said, uh, pathmaker, there is no path. You make the path by walking. You know, Caminante no hay camino, si es camino al andar. And he could have been talking about this pilgrimage path. So she's standing there on the cliff and she's gone through these three rituals you go through at the end of the camino. The first is to eat a tapas plate of scallops, because the scallop <laughs> shell is the is the icon of your journey. It's what you wore in the old days, and it's what signs your way. There are arrows with with scallop shells above them, and then the second ritual is to burn something that you've brought, which is usually a letter, you know, and usually it's a love letter <laughs> you received or sent, and uh, <clears throat> and uh, and the third ritual is to leave an item of your clothing on these piles of clothes that are all along the seashore and the sun's going down. And uh, I remember asking her, what was your most powerful moment on the whole Camino, uh, Marlene, with regard to this unknown? And she said the most powerful moment was uh, after these rituals, the sun was going down, uh, but the full moon was coming up behind me. And the full moon was so powerful in the reflection of the sun, even after the sun had dropped below the horizon, it was still illuminating the moon. And without the sun, I actually had a moon shadow that was walking across the water. And to begin with, I thought that moon shadow was, the, was myself, myself walking across the water into my new life. But then suddenly the sun fell so far that there was no reflection and the shadow began to fade. And my most powerful moment was when I realized I myself would have to walk across that unknown sea <laughs> and uh, into this life I wanted for myself. I'd have to make that path. So I'd, I'd, I wrote a few lines about it. Would you like to yes, hear them? Yes, please. Just, I was just yeah. going to say, I feel like if we were sitting in the same room, I would ask you to read a poem right now. So I'd love that. Um. Yeah, this is. I wrote this after hearing the story. I set up... Uh, on the couch until two o'clock in the morning and finished it and gave it to Marlene for at breakfast time the next morning. Mm. And it's called Finisterre. Finisterre in Spanish, Finisterre. The ends of the earth, it means. The road in the end, the road in the end taking the path the sun had taken into the western sea. The road in the end taking the path the sun had taken into the western sea. And the moon, the moon rising behind you as you stood where ground turned to ocean. No way to your future now, except the way your shadow could take, walking before you across water, going where shadows go. No way to make sense of a world that wouldn't let you pass, except to call an end to the way you had come. To take out each frayed letter you had brought and light their illumined corners, and to read them as they drifted on the late western light. 
to empty your bags, to sort this and to leave that, to promise what you needed to promise all along, to promise what you needed to promise all along, and to abandon the shoes that brought you here right at the water's edge, not because you had given up, not because you had given up, but because now you would find a different way to tread, and because through it all, part of you would still walk on, no matter how, over the waves. Mm. Finisterre, yes. Of course, we're all reaching those Finisterres, the place where I didn't say that uh, the item of clothing that uh, Marlene left on the uh, on the piles there at the end of her walk were her shoes, actually, <laughs> and uh, her boots that, that she'd walked in, which were falling apart. And uh, she loved those boots, but they were no longer of any use. And sometimes that's the hardest footwear to get rid of. It's the, the, the actual footwear that has brought you to this place. It's, mm-hmm. They were actually good for you, you know. Whatever identity you were occupying was actually a good identity and it was true. And now it's not. Why? The season's changed. Your life has changed. What lies ahead of you has changed. And, uh, and you have to leave those shoes at the, uh, the edge of the water and, uh, and involve yourself in this. You know, in this conversation where you feel uh, the ground will not hold your weight. Yeah. I, I feel like that human moment that you're describing is, um, is also true of our, like, our common life right now and to, like, our species. <laughs> but mm, that yeah. there's, there's so much ground that we stood on, you know, in the 20th yes. century or in the pre-9-11 world or in the pre- before the 2000, you know, you can name all these things that have happened exactly. where things that just made sense yeah. not that long ago just don't make sense anymore. Yes. And I, as I watch, you know, this political season, for example, which is so mm, distressing I, I'm thinking yes. a lot about how the one thing, like human beings know how to fight when they can see what the threat is, and we know how to shut down and, and, and turn inward. But what kind of makes us crazy is uncertainty. And, um, you know, you're describing the fact, the reality that uncertainty is in fact is an existential reality of being human. But it's, it's one that, you know, we have some pretty sophisticated devices for covering up. But it's, I feel like kind of like collectively we're at this point where we have no choice but to um, f- be crazy or, or walk into it as you're describing. But it's, it's, it's terrifying and it's not easy. It's not easy for us. It's not easy for, for an individual in, at those many junctures in life to, to do that? No, uh, I always think that the first step uh, in, in the courageous conversation is always stopping having the one you're having now, stopping the conversation. And of course, that's hard for an individual. It's very hard for a collective, for society and for the global society that we're becoming, that we're becoming at the same time. And it's very hard for America at the moment to let go of this old conversation where it was the primary number one kingpin Mm. in the world and uh, so we're seeing all kinds of peripheral kicking against the traces against that and uh, so the ability to uh, I would say the first steps uh, step is stopping the conversation the second step you mean stopping is, the conversation is not good for us or the, 
No, it is good for us. No, that's exactly what we need to do. It's the hardest thing to do. And not improving, not ameliorating, not re-strategizing, just stopping so that you can have a proper relationship with silence. Oh, and, okay. Uh, All right. All yes, right. Mm-hmm. yeah. And the second step is cultivating a relationship with the unknown. I think it's a time when each of us has to uh, has to understand uh, um, that half of life is meant to be hidden for you for, for you at, from you at any one time. Our educational systems are constantly rewarding us for having uh, identifiable, nameable knowledge, right. and so right. all through your life, you're rewarded for having your hand up saying, "Sir, Miss, you know, I have the answer." And uh, and actually, mo- uh, half the time you're not supposed to understand what's going on until it actually makes itself fully known until it comes to fruition. We're constantly naming things too early. I have a an essay in my uh, in my latest book, Consolations, in in which I look at the way um, human beings are constantly naming love too early. What kind of love they're in? Yeah. And uh, we all know uh, to our cost that. Uh, we're often in a different form of love, love relationship than we thought <laughs> with someone else <laughs> we were in. <laughs> so, and um, and we, it stretches to our whole sense of, you know, I have another essay on self-knowledge. Where I say self-knowledge is not fully possible for human beings. We do not reside in a body, a mind or a world where it is achievable or from the point of view of being interesting, even desirable. Yeah. <laughs> Half of Half of what's about to occur is unknown, both inside you and outside you. So how do we... Uh, I mean, John O'Donoghue, uh, a mutual friend of both of us, used to used to say that one of the necessary tasks is this radical letting alone of yourself and the world. Yeah. Letting the world speak in its own voice and letting this deeper sense of yourself speak out. Yeah. I, I love the, the Consolations book, the... The, um, the subtitle of that is the solace, nourishment, and underlying meaning of everyday words, and and the word that comes first is is alone, um, mm. and I I think is one of the important observations you make there is that, and a thing that's really basic but hard for us to take in is that one of the elemental dynamics of self compassion is to understand our deep reluctance to be left to ourselves. <laughs> yes. That's right. Yeah. I mean, I've often felt like the deeper discipline of poetry is overhearing yourself say things you didn't want to know about the world. Mm. And uh, something that actually emancipates you from this smaller self out into this larger dispensation that you actually didn't think you deserved. And so one of the things we're most afraid of is the, in silence is this death of the periphery, you know, the, the outside concerns. Uh, the place where you've been building your personality and where you think you've been building who you are starts to atomize and fall apart. And it's one of the basic reasons why we find it difficult even just to turn the radio off or the yeah. television or not look at our gadget, you know, uh, is that giving over to something that's going to actually seem as if it's undermining you to begin with and lead to your demise and... Uh, the intuition, unfortunately, is correct. You are heading towards your demise, but it's leading towards this richer, deeper place that uh, doesn't get corroborated very much in our everyday outer world. Would you read the poem, um, Everything is Waiting for You? I'll not only read it, I'll recite it, actually. Oh, right. I have it in Excellent. my memory. And I was just in a room full of 
many hundred people this morning reciting this very mm. poem. And uh, this is a, uh, this piece is uh, is written almost like a conversation in the mirror, uh, trying to remind myself what's first order. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and we have so many allies in this world, uh, including just the color the color blue in the sky, uh, which we're not paying attention to, or the breeze, or the, the ground beneath our feet. And so this is an invitation to come out of abstraction and back into the world again. It's called Everything is Waiting for You. Your great mistake, your great mistake is to act the drama as if you were alone. Your great mistake is to act the drama as if you were alone. As if life were a progressive and cunning crime with no witness to the tiny hidden transgressions. To feel abandoned is to deny the intimacy of your surroundings. Surely, even you at times have felt the grand array, the swelling presence, and the chorus crowding out your solo voice. You must note the way the soap dish enables you, or the window latch grants you courage. Alertness is the hidden discipline of familiarity. Alertness is the hidden discipline of familiarity. The stairs are your mentor of things to come. The doors have always been there to frighten you and invite you. And the tiny speaker in the phone is your dream ladder to divinity. The tiny speaker in the phone is your dream ladder to divinity. Put down the weight of your aloneness and ease into the conversation. The kettle is singing even as it pours you a drink. The cooking pots have left their arrogant aloofness and seen the good in you at last. All the birds and creatures of the world are unutterably themselves. Everything Everything, everything is waiting for you. Mm. I, I love that line, alertness is the hidden discipline of familiarity. Exactly, yes. You could take that into a relationship or marriage with good results. Mm. <laughs> alertness mm. is the hidden discipline and of familiarity. You, 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 you make the point also that, that that everything that is waiting includes things that will surprise us in both directions, right? <laughs> that, well, that, yes. that, that everything also yeah. includes your own d demise. Exactly, um, yeah. Yes, half of, every, of all human experience is mediated through loss and disappearance. Mm -hmm. And this is one of the reasons why we won't have the conversation. Because we don't want to go there. We don't want to open that, acknowledge no, that you, possibility. If you have a really fierce loss, you know, the loss of someone who's mm -hmm. close to you, uh, the loss of a mother, a father, a brother, a sister, a friend, God forbid, a child, you know, then human beings have every right to say, listen, God, if, these, if this is how you play the game, I'm not playing the game. I'm not playing by your rules. I'm going to, I'm going to manufacture my own little game, and I'm not going to come out of it. You know, I'm going to make my own little bubble, and, um, and I'm going to draw up the rules, and I'm not coming out to this frontier again. I'm, I'm, I, I don't want to, you know, I want to create insulation. I want to create um, distance. And uh, many human beings do, do that for the rest of their lives. Many do it for just a short period and then reemerge again. But all of us uh, are struggling to be, be here. One of the great theological que questions is around incarnation, which simply means being here, you know, in your body, not anywhere else, just here with life's fierce need to change you, you know? And the fact that the more you're here and the more you're alive, the more you realize you're a, you're a mortal human being, yeah? 
and uh, and that you will pass from this place and will you actually turn up will you actually have the conversation given that is so will you become a uh, full citizen of vulnerability loss and disappearance which you have no choice about you know i i sense all the way through your writing um in your poetry and your other writing you You, I say it this way, but I don't. You, there's a sadness in in you, which is in, in all. But you, you, and I, and it's in all of us. But it's a, you walk with it as a companion. I think more openly than we're taught to do, and and perhaps that's also something that poetry allows. I so. You and I both loved John O'Donohue, and I think we yeah. also both love Rilke. And Rilke talked mm-hmm. about, you know, loving the dark hours of his being. Yes. Um, yeah. And yeah, I just wanted to note that I, I, I appreciate it, and it's also one of these things about what you say about uh, what you bring into the world that is. Um, I know people recognize it, but it's also a little bit frightening. Yes, and uh, I describe it more from my own experience as wistfulness and sad and and, uh, and poignancy. Mm-hmm. Yes, a kind of elegiac uh, approach to life. And an elegy, you know, a good elegy, looking at it from the poetic point of view, is always a conversation between uh, between grief and celebration. Mm. The grief of the loss of the person, and the celebration that you are here at all to share the planet with them. You know. <laughs> and uh, we have that initial shock. Uh, I had that shock. You know, I was such a close friend to uh, to uh, John O'Donoghue, who we've mentioned. You know, and he was. I, I'm I'm a poet philosopher. He would have been a philosopher poet, and we were like two bookends. And there was uh, always someone in the world I knew um, who was traveling and speaking uh, uh, from the same place, although using slightly different language and a slightly different accent. <laughs> I mean, yeah. <laughs> so, but uh, when he went, it was like uh, the other half of me disappeared. And uh, we have this physical experience in loss of falling towards something. It's, it's like falling in love, except it's falling into grief. Mm. And uh, you're falling towards the foundation that they held for you in 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 your life that mm. you didn't realize they were, they were holding. And you fall and fall and fall, and you don't find it for the longest time. Eh? And uh, and so the shock of of the loss to begin with, and the hermetic sealing off is necessary in grief. You know? But then there comes a time where you finally actually start to touch the ground that they were holding for you, and it's from that ground that you step off into your new life. And uh, been very strange phenomena in that instance, for instance, of uh, losing John, where, whereby I'll start a sentence and feel like John has finished it, or I'll hear John speaking and I'll. I'll um, I'll start in his voice and finish in my own, mm. and sometimes we're both talking together, which happened a lot when we were <laughs> mm. when we were mm. actually together, and uh, so there's this um, really astonishing melding that occurs, which is a kind of dream time, which human beings start to move into in their maturity, actually, where what is past, what what is present, and what's about to occur uh, are not so clearly marked out, you know. Hmm. One of the things the Irish say is that the thing about the past is it's not the past. 
right. Yeah, it's, <laughs> it's right here yeah. in this room, it's you know, in this right. conversation, you know, in the ears of all the listeners who are who are listening to us. Each yeah. listener has their own astonishing foundational inheritance uh, that they're bringing to this conversation that they're overhearing between the two of us. And there's so many different kinds of loss, right, and across a lifespan. I mean, I'm right now just about my second child. My son is about to leave home, and yes, I, I love thinking about that. It's just kind of set. It's just kind of sinking in on me, and I love thinking about that. You know, what would that? What will that mean for this particular loss to yes. fall into that foundation of, um, yes. you know, how becoming a mother. Yes. Change, it absolutely transformed me and will still be part yes. of me, but, but my child will not be at home in that way. This is another delusion we have, that we can get th- take a sincere path in life without having our heart broken. Yeah, right. <laughs> and you think about the path of parenting, there's, there's never been a mother or father since the beginning of time who hasn't had their heart broken by their children. Yeah. <laughs> and nothing... Dramatic has to happen. All they have to do is grow up. <laughs> right. <laughs> but usually there are dramatic happens, things yes. that happen as well anyway. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, just in case we were getting bored. Um, you know, yes. another poem. I wonder, the poem No One Told Me. Do you have that one? Oh, right. That's a very fierce poem. I haven't read yes, that Yes, it's years. a fierce poem. Um, luckily, I've got a book here with the So I have your the River Flow, and I have the page numbers yes. in that if you... Now, what is, what is the it's page It's 131 number? in that. Yes. No one told me it would lead to this. No one said said there would be secrets I would not want to know. No one told me about seeing. Seeing brought me loss and a darkness I could not hold. No one told me about writing or speaking. Speaking and writing poetry, I unsheathed the sharp edge of experience that led me here. No one told me it could not be put away. I was told once only in a whisper. The blade is so sharp, it it cuts things together. The blade is so sharp, it cuts things together, not apart. This is no comfort. My future is full of blood from being blindfolded, hands outstretched, feeling a way along its firm edge. Yeah, so I'd say that's that's the poem of someone at the beginning of of the apprenticeship. Hmm. Or I'd say a a good ways into it. And... um, I, things the metaphor does change actually as you deepen it, but that's how you feel when you're first working with the discipline of poetry and with the discipline of revelation. Is uh, it's it's uh, it's, uh, it's a one, sharp edge. <laughs> yeah, one uh, cutting away after another, mm, mm. and uh, but there is an end to the cutting away. Mm. So it's interesting to look back and see that young man's fierce poem. It's very true. And that cutting edge leads to another, it leads to that cutting together, to that, uh, that's a reference, by the way, to the sword in, uh, Ueshima's sword in uh, the discipline of Aikido, and I studied Aikido for years. Mm. And there's said to be this mythical sword in Aikido, upon which all the sword movements are are what the hand movements are actually based on in that martial art. And this sword is said to be so sharp, it cuts things together, not apart. You know, we don't mm. know what this means, but, it's, <laughs> right. but we have an intuition. <laughs> yes. Mm. Yes. Mm. So, you know, I, I first started hearing about you in the 90s, I think, um, when, um, and especially this book, The Heart Aroused Poetry mm-hmm. and the Preservation of the Soul in Corporate America. Yes. And, <laughs> a book you know, I was bullied into writing. Yes. What? Oh, you were bullied into writing. Well, yes, in a good way, yes. I, 
I think um, on the surface, most people would say that corporations would be the least poetic spaces in our midst. Um, I, you know, what you what you I think bring into the open or help people bring into the open is the the difficult fact that um, all of this complexity of being human and all of these things we carry, uh, we don't actually check at the door of our workplaces. Um, I mean, you talk about the drama of work. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, how did you get into that, um, and what did you what did what what did you learn there? Well, you know, I'm still in the heart of it. Mm-hmm. I work with big uh, companies and their leadership teams all around the world. Yeah, and but to begin with, I I all I knew was my bitterly earned experience within non-profit organizations <laughs> but i do say if you really Which want to can kill also, yourself also have yeah, drama and perhaps more. exactly oh my god no it's <laughs> yeah if you really want to kill yourself the non-profit is the place to go you know <laughs> and if you want machiavellian politics then uh, yeah a non a good non-profit or the, or the english department at the university of chicago is yeah. exactly the place Touché. to go yeah. you know? and um so um um, I I went full-time as a poet, never imagining that I would work in the belly of the beast in the corporate world. You know, I grew up from long lines of rebels and the dispossessed on both my Scots, Yorkshire, and, and on my Irish sides. And then I grew up in an area of West Yorkshire, which was raving socialist and where the Luddites used to march across the fields to break up the machinery. So, you know, my blood inheritance was around around disbelief and around skepticism around any large abstract organizations, whether they were government or private. And uh, and so when I went full-time as a poet, I was only a year into it, and I spoke here, uh, in Washington, D.C. at a large psychological conference. And at the end of the conference was this line of people, and at the end of the line was a man who in best American fashion said, we have to hire you. Hmm. And uh, and I said in best Anglo-Irish fashion, for what? <laughs> <laughs> Enthusiastically. And he said, to come into corporate America. And I said, for what? And he said a marvelous thing, actually. He said, the language we have in that world is not large enough for the territory that we've already entered. Hmm. Hmm. The language we have in that. And in your work, I've just heard the language that's large enough for us. And of course, he was talking about, uh, about the territory of human relationship that the workplace was entering and uh, the movable human relationship and the movability that the organizations had to have, you know. And the only place that came from was from the individuals who actually worked within the structures. So it was the breaking apart of many of those structures. And I don't think we quite realize how overstructured our organizations were just 25 years ago or 30 years ago. I mean, there are still plenty of dinosaur ones left for us to still go and live in. If well, we I, want think them, but, I think we I think we we realize that every once in a while when we we engage with an organization that's still structured that way, that hasn't managed to change, and you realize yes. how unwieldy and inefficient and yes. ridiculous it is, and bad yes. for us. Yes, and of course we've still a long way to go. It's just, all of our difficulties have now become more subtle and more invisible mm. between us and so that's what I work with around I work around uh, what I call these seven steps uh, that make a real conversation whether it's inside yourself or with the people you're trying to actually bring together to do things 
that a single person can't do alone. And really, that's the only, that's the definition of a corporation. It's from corpus, Latin, meaning a body. It's a group of people trying to do something you cannot do if you try to do it by yourself. Mm, that's, mm-hmm. that's the only definition. Uh, that's the simplest core, radical simplicity at the center of every organization. Yeah. You also, you... You extend this idea that there's no self that will survive a real conversation or say there's no organization that will keep its original identity if it's in a conversation. I suppose you also mean yes. a conversation with within and without, with, with the world as well. Yeah, I mean, all of us have this inherited conversation inside us, which we know is untouchable. You know, it comes from our parents, from our the way we're made and all the rest. Of it. But that's, that's an invisible quality inside you. Uh, all the visible qualities, you know, that take form and structure will have to change in order to keep the conversation real. Just as as we go through the different decades of our life, we have to change the structures of our life in order to keep things things new, in order to keep our youthfulness. You know, and I do think I do think there is a a a quality of youthfulness which is. Uh, appropriate to every decade of, a li- of our life. It mm-hmm. just looks different. We we have this fixed idea of youthfulness from our teens or our 20s. But actually, there's a form of, the, of youthfulness you're supposed to inhabit when you're in your 70s or your 80s or your 90s. It's this sense of imminent surprise, of imminent revelation, except the revelation and the... And the um, and the discovery is more magnified, you know. There's uh, more to do with your mortality and your and what you're going to pass on and leave behind you, the shape of your own absence. Yeah. Mm. There's this, there are these lines from um, ten years later, your poem. Uh, Innocence is what we allow to be gifted back to us once we've given ourselves away. Lovely. Say that again. I haven't heard it for a while. Yes. <laughs> Innocence is what we allow to be gifted back to us once we've given ourselves away. Yes, and that's I, right. Yeah. I do. I absolutely think I read that and understand it from, you know, the play. You know, being in my fifties, um, mm-hmm. it it it's true that one of the uh, gifts of getting older that uh, is a surprise um, is that. You as a quality of usefulness that doesn't have anything to do with your physical body but is uh it's like a recovery of something so lovely yes exactly it's like a deep memory at the same time yeah, yeah. and a giving away you know if innocence is in a way the ability to be found by the world mm. it's not a state of naivety it's the ability to be found by the world you're now inhabiting yeah. Mm. And uh, part of what we find is we're just supposed to give ourselves away, actually. I often feel that uh, one of the real signs of maturity is not only understanding that you're a mortal human being and you are going to die, which usually happens in your mid-40s or 50s. Oh, I am actually going to die. It's not Mm. someone else I'm going to become. But another step of maturity is actually realizing that the rest of creation might be a little relieved to let you go. <laughs> that you can stop repeating yourself, stop taking all this oxygen up and make way for something yeah. else, which you've actually, uh, you've beaten a trail for, you know, and uh, it could be your son, your daughter, could be people you've taught or mentored. Yes, it could be yes. the more generous you are, the more that circle extends, you know, into our society and those who go after us. Yeah. <clears throat> and it becomes theirs to do. Mm-hmm. 
I I want to talk a little bit more about the the work the corporate sphere just before we move on. But you know, mm-hmm. so one thing I'm really interested in in general, I interview. I've, I'm just interviewing more and more poets. Um, and it's so wonderful. I, I think the most... No, actually, I just I interviewed Naomi Shahib Nye. Oh, and yes, I interviewed yeah. Paul Muldoon uh, not that long mm-hmm. ago as well. And, yes. um, of course, total Irish, right? 100%, yes. not like you. Um, and uh, I... Um, you know, I'm so interested in this... Co- so one thing I'll say is that when we put poetry on the air... Uh, I feel like people respond to it as though they were starving for it but didn't know it. And um, I'm so interested in this question of what poetry works in us. And so I wonder what you have learned about, you know, how does poetry land in the middle of a workplace and working life? What does it do in us and for us in that context? Well, I always say that uh, poetry is language against which you have no defenses. Okay. <laughs> Otherwise, it's not poetry. Yeah. It's prose, <laughs> which is about something. And uh, so poetry is that, that moment. Yeah, that moment in a, in a conversation where you have to have the under, uh, other person understand what you're saying. And sometimes it's when you're delivering um, terrible news, you know, news of a death or an accident, and you have to tell the other person and they have to hear it, you know. And you have to say it in such a way that it's heard fully, but you have to you have to say it also with the uh, the intimacy of care and uh, mm-hmm. of uh, understanding at the same time. And you can also hear it in the marital argument, you know, and you get beautiful echoes and chorus and repetitions in marital arguments. And uh, <laughs> beautiful and terrible. Yes, exactly. That's right. Yes, but in a good marital argument, when one person has said the truth, both people are emancipated Mm. Mm. into the next stage of the of Mm. the relationship. Unfortunately, if you are not the person who said it, you have to have a little rear guard action (laughs) where you deny it. But eventually, you have to say, "I wish I'd have said that," Mm. Mm. (laughs) and you're both actually in this new place. You can turn your face away from what was said, but when you turn your face back. It will still be waiting for you. So that's the so, litmus um, test of poetry. Yeah. So um, you know what I'm working with when I—I I mean, I work in in three different worlds. One is just as a as a poet, you know, in in with my the intimacy of my readers and my listeners and audiences. Yeah. Then I work in the in the theological and psychological worlds. And at the moment, I've just come out of a big psychological conference in Washington, D.C. to do this interview. And then the third leg of the stool is uh, is working inside organizations. But really, as as time has gone by, I work, uh, I, I may work in a more structured way around these seven conversations in, in organizations. But really, I work with exa- exactly the same uh, dynamics uh, that we're all afraid of. Uh, of, first of all, one of the powerful dynamics of leadership is being visible. And many people are occupying places of responsibility where they haven't fully shown up. And it's the same dynamic you have in an individual life where they're just not here, you know. It's um, one of the vulnerabilities of being visible is that when you're visible, you can be seen. And when you can be seen, you can be touched. And when you can be touched, you can be hurt. Mm. So all of us have these elaborate uh, ways of looking as if we're showing up and not showing up. Mm. 
except in an organizational setting, it has tremendous consequences on other people's lives. We've all worked in organizations where someone is sitting there at a crossroads or nexus in the organization. They're there, but they're not there. Yeah. And because of that, they're blocking everything that's trying to come through their particular portal. Yeah. And uh, so just the ability to actually allow yourself to be seen. So one of the dynamics you have to get over with is this idea that you can occupy a position of responsibility, that you can have a courageous conversation without being vulnerable. Hmm. And this is the same, exactly the same dynamic we have in our private lives. Yes, right. <laughs> the hope is I can arrange to have the meeting with my spouse, with my children, with my life without being vulnerable. If I just arrange it all properly, if I just say exactly that, no, I'm sorry. Yeah, uh, You do not have the possibility of being here and not being vulnerable. Yeah. yeah. And uh, so it's, I, I wrote this uh, little piece in my Consolations book on vulnerability because it's one of the great, it's one of the great primary delusions uh, we have. Yeah. And um, so, shall I read, yes, read a little please. piece of it? Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> and uh, these are supposed to be Consolations, but sometimes they're like blows to the solar plexus. <laughs> I noticed that. <laughs> Vulnerability. Vulnerability is not a weakness, a passing indisposition, or something we can arrange to do without. Vulnerability is not a choice. Vulnerability is the underlying, ever-present and abiding undercurrent of our natural state. To run from vulnerability is to run from the essence of our nature. The attempt to be invulnerable is the vain attempt to become something we are not, and most especially to close off our understanding of the grief of others. More seriously, in refusing our vulnerability, we refuse the help needed at every turn of our existence and immobilize the essential, tidal, and conversational foundations of our identity. To have a temporary, isolated sense of power over all events and circumstances is a lovely, illusionary privilege, and perhaps the prime and most beautifully constructed conceit of being human, and especially of being youthfully human. <laughs> but it is a privilege that must be surrendered with that same youth, with ill health, with accident, with the loss of loved ones who do not share our untouchable powers, powers eventually and most emphatically given up as we approach our last breath. The only choice we have as we mature is how we inhabit our vulnerability how we inhabit our vulnerability, how we become larger and more courageous and more compassionate through our intimacy with disappearance. Our choice is to inhabit vulnerability as generous citizens of loss, robustly and fully, or conversely, as misers and complainers, reluctant and fearful, always at the gates of existence, but never bravely and completely attempting to enter, never wanting to risk ourselves, never walking fully through the door. Vulnerability. A <clears throat> um, couple of other words in the Consolations book that I, I loved. Um, besieged. <laughs> that besieged, you chose that yeah. one. And also that it is poetic. 
it's poetic, but just the word itself is wonderful, and I hadn't ever known that before. But you know, you say this is how most people feel most of the time. One of the yes. lines I loved in there was to lift the siege. We do our best for our children, but then at the right time, send them off with a blessing, no matter their perilous direction. Yes. Yes, that's right, too. Mm. And then rest, I loved this, is the conversation between what we love to do and how we love to be. Mm. Yes. Sounds like the definition of the perfect Sunday morning. Yeah. Mm. I, I'm also intrigued by, um, you know, aloneness. We talked about how alone is the first word in that book, and there's mm-hmm. a dance um, that you name and kind of tease out between aloneness and belonging. Yes. Can you yeah. say a little bit about that? Yes. Well, there are two different forms of belonging, I suppose, and... Uh, there's the internal deep sense of drinking from another source, which, which is its own form of belonging uh, to, to remembering, remembering the other world in this world, in a sense. Uh, the, the world you intuit, most people intuit they have come from, uh, even if it can't be described or evidence gathered as to whether it existed or not. Almost everyone has this sense of having come uh, from this other place <clears throat> and and then there's this sense of belonging in the outer world but it's very hard to have a true sense of freedom in your belonging with the outer world I mean we all know how to belong and be besieged and be beholden mm. and uh, be stressed you know and uh, but to have a sense of belonging in the outer world where you feel a sense of freedom where you're not carrying its inhabitants or the need to do things as a burden comes from this ability to touch this deep foundation of aloneness. And I do feel if you can touch that sense of aloneness, you can live with anyone. Mm -hmm. If you can touch with that, touch that deep sense of of nourishment, uh, you uh, you can actually embolden the closest living arrangement, you know, in a marriage or with your children. And it's the ability to actually let people alone and uh, by it, because you've let yourself alone. Uh, and uh, so there's this mutual... And, of course, you can get into a terrible cycle where, where uh, the more besieged you are, the less time you actually take for yourself. So yeah. this is where right. stopping right. the conversation is so important, just stopping it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Just stop it, that's all. Yeah. Sometimes that involves walking away from it, taking a a retreat, a holiday, getting away, you know, if you can, in the early stages, and then later on you learn how to stop the conversation while you're in the middle of it and and actually uh, find this place inside you. There are these, there's a, a, a lovely poem, it's, it's rather long, The House of Belonging, but I, I, these last um, lines I, I wrote down, this is the bright home in which I live. This is yes. where I ask my friends to come. This yeah. is where I want to love all the things it has taken me so long to learn to love. This is the temple of my adult aloneness, and I belong to that aloneness as I belong to my life. There is no house like the house of belonging. Lovely. It's really it's wonderful. Nice and it right again, back. that juxtaposition... Mm. 
of aloneness and belonging, that inextricability. Yes, yes. And uh, yes, I think the lines, uh, this is, yeah, the lines, you know, this is where I want to love all of the things that has taken me so long to learn to love. And uh, the, uh, the clearing of a space uh, so that you can, you can find your foundational mode of, uh, by which you hold the world in your affections and you hold others in your affections and you find room for forgiveness and for humor. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And uh, the lovely thing about uh, that spaciousness is that it does give you a sense of humor. The sense that whatever story you're telling yourself, whatever whatever context you've arranged, there's always another context that makes your context absurd. Yeah. Of course, every Irish conversation is based on this dynamic, actually. You know, of it's based on what? Uh, based on this dynamic of subverting yeah. the original foundations on which the conversation began. Right. <laughs> so that's, uh, if you're in a pub in County Clare or in a living room or whatever, that's, that's how the conversation goes along, is mm. by unpicking... Uh, the way we like to hold the story together. Yeah. So yes, the space at the between things at the center of things. There's a gorgeous poem by Rilke. You're, I know you're a lover of Rilke. You said earlier, but one of my favorite poems, which I've translated myself, is called "Du Dunkelheit." You know, your yeah. darkness. Yeah. In which he looks at the way in a vast, um, in a vast night landscape, you only need one pinprick of of light for a human being to take their reference points from that single dot yeah the whole uh, eternal field of darkness starts to center around that one dot mm. and so he's he's he in the poem he asks you what if you actually took your um, your reference point from the great embracing darkness around you from this vast horizon instead of this one familiar light-filled dot you know that you're constantly looking for it's a beautiful poem gorgeous you know and at the end he says uh, Ich glaube an Nächte, I believe in, I have faith in the night. Yeah. Yeah, right. I have faith in what is hidden, in what is not yet spoken in, in the horizon. I have this uh, poem, actually, which I wrote out of uh, uh, when I was in, in the in very intense period out of which that poem, The House of Belonging, came, when I wrote the book uh, called The House of Belonging. Mm-hmm. And I was writing night and day, but I noticed when I was sat at this uh, lovely little desk which I still have on a landing at the top of the stairs um, I, I noticed that I had this very different relationship to the world when I wrote at night mm-hmm. there was this other horizon outside the window that was drawing me and that was contextualizing what I was writing so I, I wrote this piece it's called Sweet Darkness and uh, it's about that same, that same place right. where, where were you? Where did you write this? On the west coast of the... I did, yeah. I wrote it on Whidbey Island okay. in Langley mm-hmm. yeah yeah. Um, in the Puget Sound, north of Seattle. Yeah. And uh, when your eyes are tired, the world is tired also. When your vision is gone, no part of the world can find you. It's time to go into the night where the dark has eyes to recognize its own. It's time to go into the dark where the night has eyes to recognize its own. There you can be sure you are not beyond love. The dark will make a home for you tonight. The night will give you a horizon further than you can see. You must learn one thing. You must learn one thing. The world was made to be free in. You must learn one thing. The world was made to be free in. Give up all the other worlds except the one to which you belong. Sometimes it takes darkness 
and the sweet confinement of your aloneness to learn anything or anyone that does not bring you alive is too small for you. Mm. Mm. <laughs> um, there's, there's, a, um, there's some lines from uh, this poem, What to Remember When Waking, Oh, yes. Um, that I, I think I, I want to just talk for a couple more minutes and then ask you to yeah. read just a, a few more poems. And I definitely want yeah. you to read that one. But the lines, I just want you to I want you to talk about this because I'm not I feel like I I feel like it makes sense, but I can't explain it. To, yes. to be human is to become visible while carrying what is hidden as a gift to others. Yes. What does that mean? Well, it's really working with that earlier dynamic we worked of, of incarnation, you know, yeah. of becoming visible in the world, you know. And yet the gift that you're going to give and keep on giving is 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 an invisible gift that will take many different forms. Yeah. And that you learn more of each time you allow it to take a different form. And uh, so to begin, you think it's about one thing because that's the form you're giving the gift in. And you move from your 20s into your 30s and you suddenly find another larger form for it or a different shape, you know, that makes a different connection. And and then you deepen it in your 40s, yeah. And you get overwhelmed by it in your 50s. <laughs> and and then it returns to you again in, a, in a more mature forms, settled forms in your 60s. Yeah? So this is the gift that keeps giving. And it's that internal deeper source uh, it's uh, it's you becoming more and more real and more and more visible in the world. Yeah. Mm. Um, one other word from uh, Constellations, the book, is uh, genius, which you describe as something which we already possess. And you say... He, and so you're so you're proposing it as something that's not just for Albert Einstein, but that is accessible to the rest of us. And yeah. you say this, and I'd also just like to understand this better. Yeah. Human genius lies in the geography of the body and its conversation with the world. There's your conversation again. Yes. Yeah. Uh, the meeting yeah. between inheritance and horizon. So, so help me understand that. Yes. Well, you know, in the ancient world, uh, the word genius, genius was not so much used about individual people. It was used about places and almost always with the word loci. Uh, so genius loci meant the spirit of a place. And we all know what that intuitively means. We all have favorite places in the world. And it may be a seashore, you know, where you've got this ancient conversation between the ocean and the land and a particular geography of the way the cliffs or the beaches are formed, or if you're on Monterey Bay, the way the mist and the smell of the Monterey pines informs the landscape. So this, you know, Monterey Bay has a particular genius loci, which you'll find nowhere else in the world. Uh, but it could have been the same in the ancient world. You're a little bridge crossing a stream with a pool at the back of it and a willow hanging over the pool. Uh, that place would be said to have a genius loci. And in the local folk tradition, there would literally be in the imagination a spirit living under the bridge, which mm. you'd leave fruit for or coins, you know. But a, a more sophisticated understanding would would understand it's this it's like this weather, weather front of all of these qualities that meet in that place. You can go to many other bridges and pools and willows hanging over ponds in the well, but it would not have the genius of that place, yeah, the spirit of that place. Uh, 
So I think it's a very merciful thing to think of human beings in the same way as it, uh, you know, that is that your genius is just the way everything has met in you. And and it's your physically, job just physically as well exactly as, literally mm-hmm. all all every, all the struggles of your grandparents and your parents and in arriving um, together in giving birth to your parents and giving birth to you the landscape in which you were nurtured the dialect or language in which in which you were educated into the world yeah the smells of the local environment I mean when I go back to Yorkshire just the taste of the water off the moors is completely different. When I go to County Clare, the water there uh, again has a spirit because it comes off limestone there. And, mm. and uh, so it's really merciful, actually, not to think as of genius as something that I'm going to get to by hard work. You know, if I practice the violin 15 hours a day, um, it's, uh, it's, it's the innate gift that makes me want to practice the violin, actually. It's... Uh, it's the way everything meets inside me. Will I have that conversation? Will I live out that destiny at its deepest level? And I, I think one of the other words in the book is destiny, actually. And, yes. and one of the things I came to in that essay was, you know, we all live out our destiny, no matter what we do. But you can live out that conversation at the level of frustration and distance and exile of looking through a glass darkly, of never actually coming to fruition with it. It's still your it's still your conversation. It's still your genius. But you do have the opportunity, actually, to live out that conversation at the level of fruition, of harvest, you know, of having accepted the invitation that was made for you and the invitation that you are and giving it to the world. And this is a total, you know, this is the this is the experience of consummation of a full incarnation in the world. Hmm. You know, I had... I had the same conversation with John O'Donoghue that I'm, I'm going to have with you now, which is mm. um, the beauty of that thought and um, and but the reality that uh, you know that that geography for many people at any given time is so harsh and kind of living with that reality of our global body as well. The puzzle of yes, that. yes, that's right. And uh, there are many people in Syria now just uh, right. trying to uh, preserve uh, their lives and the lives of their loved ones. And uh, uh, so this has always this has always been there and always been true. And who knows, any of us could be precipitated into awful circumstances at any time. And many of us go through those dark years where you just feel as if it's just the movement of your own your own movement that's just creating body heat to actually keep you alive. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, we go through those very, very narrow places. And John used to talk about uh, uh, how you shaped a more beautiful mind and uh, that it's an actual discipline, you know, shaping a beauty in no matter what circumstances you're in. And in fact, I inherited uh, that uh, investigation from him because I was asked to take over a newly written workshop that he just uh, worked up after he passed away and mm. uh, and I thought well I'll do this but I'll have to make it my own too at the same time and so the way I interpreted it was uh, was the discipline of asking beautiful questions and um, and that a beautiful question you know shapes a beautiful mind <clears throat> and so the ability to ask beautiful questions often in very unbeautiful moments is one of the great disciplines of a human life mm. 
And a beautiful question sh starts to shape your identity as, mu as much by asking it as it does by having it answered. Yeah. <laughs> so even even the question and even the question, you know, am I happy in my work? Many people will not even ask that question because they're afraid of what they would do if the answer came back as no. Uh, they have so many, so many bills to pay. They have the kids to look after. You know, I can't afford to ask that question. Partly because they've already short-circuited the uh, the possibilities by saying, "Well, then I just have to know that I was unhappy," and instead of feeling that there might be other possibilities. So. So then to move to the next stage of saying, what can I do about it, you know, is a beautiful question in and of itself. And you don't have to do anything about it. You just have to keep asking. And before you know it, you will find yourself actually shaping a different, yeah, like can, meeting you... different people, finding conversations that, that are leading you in those directions that you wouldn't even have seen before. Yeah. That's what Rilke called living the question. Exactly. Yeah. 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 He's always there before you. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and he is. Um, uh, also, I mean, one way I've come to think about question, the power of questions is uh, that questions elicit answers in their likeness. So, mm. yes. you know, so you call forth something beautiful by asking a beautiful question. Yes, you do. Yeah, you do. And then the other part of it, uh, too, is that there's this kind of weighted silence behind each question. And it's the part of the question that is not yet being asked. And you can feel it physically even before you can articulate it. So you can feel that weight of anticipation inside you. And it also brings about a symmetrical sense of anticipation out in the world. Yeah. So to feel the part of the question that you've actually articulated already and are able to say, and then the parts of the question that you're afraid to say or have not yet actually put together, uh, this creates a beautiful horizon out in the world too. Mm. And to live with that sense of trepidation, what I call beautiful trepidation, uh, the sense of something about to happen that you've wanted but, you, but that you're scared to death of actually happening. Yeah. Yes, that's... A, Yes. None of us really feel we deserve our happiness. So. <laughs> um, I, I want to ask you, before we hear some more poetry, um, this ancient animating question, what does it mean to mm. be human? Mm -hmm. um, I mean, that's something you, you have reflected on um, mm -hmm. with language and in thought mm -hmm. uh, all across your life. But it, I, you know, and it's a, it's a oh. huge question, but just how would yeah. you start to answer? You know, what what w how you would begin to answer that question now? What and what do you keep on learning? Yeah. What are you learning anew at this moment in your life about yeah. what it means to be human? Well, one of the interesting qualities of being human is, by the look of it, we're the only part of creation that can refuse to actually show up. <laughs> we can actually refuse to be ourselves. Right. And as far as I can see, there's no other part of the world that can do that, you know. Uh, the cloud is the cloud, the mountain is the mountain, the tree is the tree, the hawk is the hawk, you know. 
and uh, the kingfisher doesn't wake up one day and say, you know, God, I'm absolutely fed up to the back teeth of this whole kingfisher trip. (laughs) Can I have a day as a crow, you know, hang out with my mates, glide down for a bit of carrion now and again? You know, that's the life of... No, the kingfisher, just the kingfisher. And one of the healing things about the natural world to human beings is that it's just itself. Mm -hmm. But we as human beings are really quite extraordinary in that we can actually refuse to be ourselves. Mm -hmm. We can get afraid of the way we are. And we can temporarily uh, put a mask over our face and pretend to be somebody else or something else. And the interesting thing is then we can take it another step of virtuosity and forget that we were pretending to be someone else and become the person we were on the surface, at least, who we were just pretending to be in the in the first place. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So one of the one of the astonishing qualities of being human human is the measure of our reluctance to be here, actually. And I think one of the great uh, one of the great necessities of self knowledge is understanding and even tasting the single malt essence of your own reluctance to be here yeah all the ways you don't want to have the conversation all the ways you don't want to be in the marriage you don't want to be a parent you don't want to be visible in a leadership position you don't want to be doing this work and this is not to give it away this is just to understand what lies between you and a sense of freedom in it yeah Mm. and i think i think self-compassion has to do with this ability ability to understand and even to cultivate a sense of humor about all the ways you just don't want to be here. I mean, actually, that's, you know, that is the Woody Allen comic <laughs> routine in the world. <laughs> yeah. It's all the hypochondriac ways he's afraid of the world. And that's why he's so entertaining, because we all recognize that part of us. Yeah. Right. So to embody your reluctance and therefore once it's embodied to allow it to actually start to change to start to change into something else yeah to things only solidify when they're kept at a distance as soon as they're embodied they actually start to take on a kind of seasonality mm. and you're actually by by embodying it by feeling it fully uh, uh, allowing it to start to change into something else. The Greeks actually called this uh, process enantiodromia, enantiodromia, yeah. the ability of something once fully experienced to start to change almost into its exact opposite. Hmm. Um, well, this is, it's, it's wonderful, and I can't mm. wait to share this with others, and I know that our listening world will receive it eagerly. Well, there's plenty um, to work with in all that conversation. We've covered quite a bit of ground. Well it's done. Great. Yes. It's, it's yes. just wonderful. It's been also just really healing for me right now today. Well, you're a very um, good conversationalist and invitationalist, which is, of course, <laughs> why you're doing this. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> um, I, 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 we, you've read a few poems. I I, I, in fact, I have a couple more uh, from all from the selected poems. They're all from the admonitions section. I don't know if it's like right now I want to be admonished or something. Yeah. <laughs> but the the working together and self portrait and what to remember when waking. 
Yeah. And and I don't know if and I have the page numbers of those and I don't know if there's maybe something you would feel called to read. Um, Actually, what I'd love to read is mm-hmm. is a poem in my latest book, The Sea in You. Yeah. And it's called Stone, and it really fits with everything we've been talking okay. about, about being here. And it's about a carved... Are we still uh, in the midst of the interview? Are we still uh, being recorded and everything else? Um, yeah, no, we are. We'll, we'll use all of yes. this. We'll, we'll, we'll take this uh, beautiful piece of stone and sculpt it into... A, and then yes. also we will... Mm. Uh, you know, we'd love to... Um, there might be poems that you read that we won't be able to get into the broadcast, but we would yes. be able to offer people online. We'll get, all the, we'll get all the permissions for that as well. Yes. I think this might be enough, actually. But uh, this, uh, I'll do a little setup story around it because mm-hmm. uh, this stone is a face that uh, John, John O'Donoghue would have known well. And it's a carved face at a place called uh, Thoberfordrick, which means the Well of Patrick. And it's on a mountainside overlooking Galway Bay um, in the Barren, the limestone area of North right. Clare. And uh, the well uh, is the place that draws most people. But just below the well is a square plinth of rocks that have been put together. And these rocks are all the kind of archaeological miscellanea of the, of the area. And, and there are a number of carvings and uh, things from indeterminate age parts of Irish history and this face is one of them and the face is quite extraordinary and I've always seen it as the face of a woman and it's just facing into the weather and I remember the first time I saw the face in the rock I had this shock of understanding that I was being asked to hear something uh, and that I, but that I wasn't quite hearing it you know? hmm. I had this uh, sense that the face was trying to tell me something and I remember standing there for the longest time and just not getting it, which is a bit of a shock for me because my thing in life is getting it. That's my job is to get it <laughs> and say it. And I just wasn't getting it. And uh, and uh, I stood there for the longest time and I said, well, I'll have to come and see you again and have another interview. You know? <laughs> and I've gone up to Thoberfordrick at least once a year for the last 20 years and sometimes two or three times a year. And... Uh, it's one of my favorite places on the planet. <laughs> and each time I'd go, I'd stand before this face and I would have this little silent exchange. And, but I was no wiser every time. And then I went into this stretch of years where I just got used to not knowing. And, uh, and I just stood there happy that I didn't know what she was trying to say to me just like all the other relationships in my life. <laughs> Why should this be different? And um, But then I got a hold of myself and I said, no, you need to really ask. She is actually trying to tell you something. Well, this went on for years. I'd go up there. And in fact, 20 years. And it was just last year after I'd spent an intensive week in Connemara in Loch Aina, working with a cinematographer and, and camera woman, uh, that... Uh, I made this I made this breakthrough in Connemara with the camera lens. There was this intimacy I'd always uh, felt, you know, on the page with the invisible listener or writer or or reader, sorry. The intimacy with an audience, but I had never quite established it with a camera lens. I'd always felt it with the microphone in a studio and with the radio. But I was very happy to find that during that week I made this breakthrough with the camera lens itself and all the eyes and ears behind that lens. Well, at the end of the week, I said to the camera woman, let's go round to Thoberfordrick, to the Well of Patrick, and I'll do a little piece above the well 
about drinking from a different source, but then I want to show you this face. Well, we went to the, we went to the stream, to the well of Patrick, and then we dropped down below to the plinth and to the face. And I said, there, there she is, I said. And the camera woman immediately got down her, on her knees, really close to the face with her camera. And she was looking at this face through the same lens that had been looking at me for the whole week. And the face was looking back through the lens. And it was just then as if I was the face speaking into the camera. Mm. And I knew exactly what the face had been trying to tell me for 20 years. And so this is the piece okay. uh, that I wrote. It's called Stone. And it's really about, about the vulnerability of being fully here. The face in the stone, stone, stone. The face in the stone is a mirror looking into you. You have gazed into the moving waters. You have seen the slow light in the sky above Lochina. Beneath you, streams have flowed and rivers of earth have moved beneath your feet. But you have never looked into the immovability of stone like this. The way it holds you, gives you not a way forward, but a doorway in, staunches your need to leave, becomes faithful by going nowhere. Something that wants you to stay here and look back, be weathered by what comes to you, like the way you too have traveled from so far away to be here, once reluctant and now as solid and as here and as willing to be touched as everything you have found. Mm. Beautiful. Actually, I'd like to read that that again, if I could, your oh, editor, okay, sure. use a second reading. Yeah. Yeah. Stone. The face in the stone is a mirror looking into you. You have gazed into the moving waters. You have seen the slow light in the sky above Lochina. Beneath you, streams have flowed, and rivers of earth have moved beneath your feet. But you have never looked into the immovability of stone like this. The way it holds you gives you not a way forward, but a doorway in, staunches your need to leave, becomes faithful by going nowhere. Something that wants you to stay here and look back, be weathered by what comes to you, like the way you too have traveled from so far away to be here, once reluctant and now as solid and as here and as willing to be touched as everything you have found. Um, um, would you maybe also just read one more? Read Working Together? Working Together, yes. yeah. Yes, do you have I that have there? that in my memory, actually. Three, oh, you do, here. okay. <clears throat> yeah. Yes, this poem came out of uh, the Boeing Company after I'd worked with all of their top managers, 600 of them for a year. They asked me to uh, compose a dedication to the 777 aeroplane, <laughs> which they just launched and which had just won this very large, uh, uh, very prestigious uh, aerospace trophy. And it was a bit of a shock when I got the call because I said, you know, poets don't do very well under these circumstances <laughs> and I'm not going to write you a piece of propaganda, you know. So if I don't have anything decent, I'm, I won't be sending you anything. And they said, fine, fine, that's good. You know, we want it for the dinner where where the aerospace, is, aerospace trophy is, the Collier trophy is presented. And I said, fair enough, you know. So 
So I thought about how much time I'd spent in the air, you know, in aeroplanes. And, and speaking of reluctance, there's a tremendous reluctance to be out there. Often outside the window, there are these astonishing bi- biblical skyscapes that you can see. And, and uh, people have the shutters down and they're watching Dumb and Dumber right. on the back of the seat, you know. Yeah. I said, what is that? You know, and it's, of course, it's, I don't want to be here. I am not really here. I am not traveling at 550 miles per hour at 35,000 feet with no visible means of support. (laughs) But every now and again, when you look out of that window and you're dropping down through levels of temperature and humidity, you will see this solid white line, which is etched around the wing, made up of the condensation of vapor in the atmosphere. And you realize when you look at that, at that, uh, condensation trail around the edge of the plane and the shape of the wing, you realize that the conversation that's, the forces that are holding you in place are as solid as concrete, but they're made up of a conversation between velocity and this particular shape that human beings finally arrived at. And the bringing together of these two qualities only happened 140 years ago, mm. which allow us to travel all over the world now in short order. But the interesting thing is those two qualities have been there since the beginning of time. So it's really interesting to ask what qualities in myself have never met? <laughs> what two qualities are, have I never put together? What distances could I travel if I actually brought parts of me together that have never spoken? So this is called working together. I'd say that's a beautiful question. That is a beautiful and disturbing (laughs) question. Thank you. We shape ourselves to fit this world, working together. We shape ourselves to fit this world, and by the world are shaped again. The visible and the invisible, working together in common cause to produce the miraculous. I'm thinking of the way the invisible air traveled at speed round a shaped wing, easily holds our weight. I'm thinking of the way the invisible air traveled at speed round a shaped wing, easily holds our weight. So may we in this life trust to those elements we have yet to see or imagine and find the true shape of our own self by forming it well to the great intangibles about us. And find the true shape, the true shape of our own self by forming it well to the great intangibles about us, working together. Well, David, thank you so much. This Lovely. Been, it's been an absolute pleasure. It yeah. has. Yes. Um, One point you might just mention to your editor to keep yes. the repetitions in the poem. Oh, you, don't worry. you probably they, know. Yeah, yes. I, 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 it's, it's fabulous, and I know that's what you do, and there's no question yeah. of us editing in doing that kind of internal editing. I see. Right. Yeah. Lovely. Yeah. Um, well, we, I think we're going to air this in, um, in April, and we'll let you know when that's happening. And I'm, Marvelous. Yeah, yeah, I look forward to that. I think it should. I think we uh, managed to create a bit of magic there. Yes, together. I so do I too. Think, it's, uh, it's, be, uh, it's, yeah. it's, been, it's just been beautiful. So I'm so, so glad we, you know, you've been on the list for a long time, and I'm so glad we finally did this. And, uh, Lovely. Yeah, and really. I hope our paths will cross again somewhere. Yeah, and I wish you well with your son. My daughter's in uh, Paris at the moment. Yeah. Uh, 18 years old on okay. our gap year. She's been in South Africa and I'm joining her there on Sunday with my son actually. Yeah. So uh, I know exactly how it is. Great uh, adventure. I'm exchanging texts with her even now about 
oh. Her missing bag. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Okay, well, yes. Yeah. Thank you Lovely. again. <clears throat> yes, you too, Krista. Yeah. Absolute pleasure. Yes. Bye-bye. All the best. Yeah. God bless. Keep you well. Too. Bye now.